if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of 2 Samuel, not the first text you think of when you think of Christmas, but 2 Samuel chapter 7. And for the, we're going to focus mainly on just a few verses, but for the sake of context, we're going to read the first 17 verses together, and I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7, following along verses 1 through 17, give here to the reading of God's word, it says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest uh, from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Mm -hmm. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should shepherd, uh, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you and that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. While the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we know that uh, we are unable to understand rightly apart from your, you teaching us by the work of your spirit. So we ask once again that you might be pleased uh, to move in us, to work in us by your Holy Spirit, that you may give us once again eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't been here, this is uh, we're continuing today kind of a four-week mini-series, uh, sermon series for Advent. On it's called uh, The series is called The Promise of Christmas. And what we've been doing over these last few weeks is taking a look at just a handful of some of the more significant Old Testament passages that foretold and promised Uh, the coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Savior. Now, if you've been here for that, you probably already knew this, but the story of Christmas doesn't start 
in the first page of, of the book of Matthew. The story of Christmas, of, of God sending his son to save his people, starts all the way back in the Old Testament. We saw a few weeks ago, even in the book of Genesis, in the earlier chapters of Genesis, and it's really found in some ways, you could say it's found throughout the pages of the Old Testament itself, as well as the New Testament. Now, last Sunday we looked at, at maybe an unfamiliar text to some, uh, Deuteronomy 18.15, that's where Moses says that the Lord promised to raise up a prophet like Moses from among the people. Uh, and and I, no one used this phrase with me last week, but I got the impression, uh, even for myself, that as I was going through it, that it was kind of like drinking out of a fire hose. You know, there were so many Old Testament texts kind of shotgunned here and there throughout the, the sermon. And so uh, I, I won't say this one won't be like that. So if you're scrambling to take notes, I apologize ahead of time. Uh, this is kind of one of those sermons where I, when I first started mapping it out, I thought, oh, this will be, be easy peasy. And then the more I looked, the more you realize how many texts in the Old and New Testament point to Jesus as the son of David, as the king that was to come. Uh, you know, we could literally spend the entire time of the sermon just reading those texts and I wouldn't get done. That's how many there really are. It's kind of like, what's the saying? If it was a dog, it would bite you. It's all over the pages of, of the Old and New Testament. And so we're not going to be able to handle all those different passages. But uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll at least get the bare basics of, of what this promise to, to David, how it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, so that's, that's our task this morning to try to uh, follow up. So if that was drinking out of a fire hose, maybe this is like treating a fire hydrant like a water fountain. I hope, hope that's not how it feels by the time we're done here this morning. But let's look at a few things from this passage in 2 Samuel. In God's promise to David, the king, and how he really was promising him not just a son, not just someone to succeed him on the throne, but really was promising the sending of his own son, Jesus Christ our Lord to be our ultimate king of kings. Now notice the first thing we see here in our, in our text is that God promised David a seed or an offspring. In the opening verses of the chapter, what did you see? You saw David. What did David want to do? David had been fighting fights for you know, the Lord's people, delivering them from the, the enemies of God and his people. And he realized he's relaxing in his house of cedar, his palace. And so what did he want to do when he realized he, he the human king, uh, you know, God's, God's king was in a palace, but the ark of the Lord was where? It was in a tent. And, you know, you can imagine David being a little uncomfortable at that prospect. It, you know, it, it almost, if you, if you put yourself in David's, you know, shiny shoes for a minute, he probably thought, God's here, so to speak, and I'm way down here, but here I am in a palace, and God's, in a sense, not that God lives in a box, but God's in this tent. God's camping while I've got a nice house. So he, what does he want to do? He, he goes to Nathan the prophet. I mean, he does the right thing. You know, David's not presumptuous. He doesn't just take it upon himself to do whatever he thinks is right. He goes to the prophet Nathan and he says, hey, you know, I've got this thing. And, and what does Nathan say? Oh, you know, you're good. Whatever you want to do, you know, whatever's in your heart, just go ahead and do it. The Lord is with you. And then what does God do? I'm paraphrasing. What does God say to Nathan? Not so fast. You know, did I, did I tell him to build a house? Did I tell you to tell him to build a house? You know, cool your jets a little bit. Uh, and so he tells him what to tell David. He tells him basically, it may sound negative, but it really isn't. He tells him no. He says, you're not going to be the one. Someone's going to build me a house, but it's not going to be you. But what does he promise David in that, in that text? It, it, he promised David a, a seed or an offspring. 
after him. Now, this is what he says in verses 11 to 12. It says, moreover, the Lord declares to you, that's to David, that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his his kingdom. So God kind of flips it, doesn't he? You want to build me a house? Well, you got it all backwards. I'm going to build you a house. You're the one. You, You think you have a house now. You, that's nothing. The, the house of cedar you have now is nothing. It's not going to last forever. It's, it's as fancy as it was. It, it really wasn't the blessing God had in mind for David. He was going to build David a house. Now, the house that he has in mind for David obviously is not a literal physical house. David already had one. That was, that's what started this whole thing to begin with. David looks around at this palace, this house of cedar, and thought something was out of place. And God's like, kind of like, you're right, but you got it backwards. There is something missing here, but it's not what you think. I'm going to build you a house starting with this, with this seed. He promises to David that his house or his line was going to continue and that he's going to raise up a successor after him. Now think about that. If you were here last week and some of you weren't, it sounds a lot, in a lot of ways very similar to God's promise to Moses. What, what did he say to, to, through Moses? I'm going to what? There's the same phrase, raise up a prophet like you from among you, from among your brothers, to him you must listen. He's going to raise up, as he said to, to Moses, raise up a prophet like Moses. Well, he's also going to raise up the seed of David after him to be the king uh, after him. Now, Moses, we saw last time, the successor, if, you're, if you didn't, you, you wouldn't want to do this, but if you could kind of treat your brain as an Etch-a-Sketch, remember Etch-a-Sketches, you could doodle and it always looks goofy, and you shake it and what happens? It goes away and you can start all over again, right? Well, if you could pretend you've never read the Bible before, right? If you didn't know anything, maybe, maybe you don't know some of these Old Testament stories, but if you didn't know what comes next, in some ways, it, it would kind of be fresh eyes to look at it that way. If you didn't know the story already after Moses, who would you expect to be the one that God was talking about? The prophet like Moses. You'd think it was Joshua, You read the book of Joshua, in a lot of ways, on a smaller scale, he's kind of like Moses part two. You know, he doesn't do all the same things that Moses did, and that's that's a hint that he isn't the one that was to come. But he's he took the baton from Moses. Moses laid hands on him, remember, laid his hands on him. Joshua took the baton and ran with it, took the people into the promised land where Moses wasn't permitted to go. Uh, So in some ways, he was like another Moses, but he really wasn't the prophet like Moses. Well, in the same way we're going to see, I think, in this case, uh, uh, who, who does this sound like at first blush? Who does it sound like God is describing in this promise to David at first blush? It sounds like Solomon. And with good reason. Solomon thought it sounded like Solomon, as we're going to see as we go on. Look, did, did, Solomon, uh, was, did, did, God, Solomon, did God raise Solomon up to, to, to succeed David? Did he rule in David's place? Look at 1 Kings 2, verses 10 to 12. It says, this is when David dies. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was what? Forty years. He reigned seven years at Hebron and 33 years at Jerusalem. And here it is. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. He's the son of David. He reigns in David's place. His kingdom is what? Firmly established. Established. God put him there to reign after David died. 
Solomon was, was certainly the offspring or the seed of, of David. He sat, what does it say, verse 12, sat on the throne of David his father. His reign, his kingdom was firmly established by the Lord. But was Solomon, was Solomon the promised seed or offspring that God promised David? No. Was he a seed or offspring that God you know, sort of promised through this? Yes, but is he the promise that God made to David? No. What was Solomon? Solomon was kind of a type or a shadow of the one that was to come. In other words, Solomon, did Solomon build the temple? Yes. Does that sound like what God was talking about? Yes. And that's with, that's with, it, with good reason. But was that, was that temple the house God mainly had in mind? No. Was Solomon the king that God mainly had in mind? No. He was a, a shadow or a type of the greater one to come. Now, Jesus himself, this is what Jesus says about himself in Matthew twelve forty two. He says, the queen of the south... This is a rebuke to the Pharisees and scribes. He says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And with good reason, right? And he says, And behold, or but behold, something or someone greater than Solomon is here. That's a mouthful. That's, that's a pretty big thing to claim of oneself. But that's what Jesus didn't hesitate to say, that Solomon was great. He's not saying Solomon wasn't worth hearing. He wasn't saying the queen of, of Sheba shouldn't have come to hear, to hear Solomon's wisdom. He's saying, look, this, this pagan woman, this pagan ruler came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and you've got someone far greater than Solomon staring you in the face, who has wisdom far greater than Solomon's wisdom, standing before you, that she, she will condemn and rise up and condemn this generation because she knew at least enough to listen to Solomon. Now, the, the writers of the New Testament, I won't quote them all for time's sake, but the writers of our New Testament go to great lengths to show us and demonstrate over and over again that Jesus Christ is of the line of David according to the flesh. In fact, most of the passages in the Gospels and whatnot that you hear read and preached upon every Christmas, uh, it it should almost jump off the page at you when you hear it. But, you know, one of those things, we, you hear certain passages over and over again, you kind of you come, become a little bit deaf to it. It kind of loses its punch. But the very first verse in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, or Matthew starts with a long genealogy, which makes our eyes glaze over a little bit because we don't know why it's there. But he, he tells us why it's there. Look at verse 1, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. The very first verse of the New Testament screams at you and says, this baby, this, this Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of God's promises to David, and even further back than that, God's promises to Abraham. The entire Old Testament, literally, built it up to this one event in the first century at the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33, it says, And behold, it's God's word to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And what does it say? And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Right from the jump, this is the son of David. This is the one who's going to reign on the throne of David 
forever. Not for 40 years like Solomon did, forever. Romans chapter 1, we saw this, I believe, last week as well. But, you know, Paul, this, this, great, this great book, that's all about the gospel of Christ, right? In the very opening greeting of the letter, what does he say? Listen again, Romans 1, 1 through 4. He identifies himself. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, here it is, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's, it's kind of like the, 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 the lyric from that hymn we sang, uh, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. David's son, yet what? David's Lord. Paul says that right in the introduction of the letter about the gospel, that letter, it's all about the gospel of Christ. All 16 chapters of Romans is an explanation of the gospel and its implications. And practically the first thing he thinks to say, besides the fact that I'm just a servant of the King of Kings, of Jesus Christ, is Jesus was, uh, what does he say? He was descended from David according to the flesh. He's the fulfillment of God's promise to David. Lastly, this isn't the only one, but the very last chapter of your Bibles, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus himself says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. These things is everything in the book of Revelation. He's saying this is, I gave you this for the churches. And then what does he say? I am the root and the descendant or offspring or seed of David, the bright morning star. The very last, almost the last verse of your Bible, not quite, but the last chapter of our Bibles mentions Jesus being, out of his own words, the root and descendant of David. That he was the fulfillment of God's promise and covenant to King David. So think about that. The very first chapter of the New Testament and the very last chapter of our New Testament both mention Jesus as the son of of David and the fulfillment of this promise. So the first thing we see from our text is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David to give him a seed or an offspring to succeed him on the throne. The second thing God promises to David, this is kind of where the whole thing started, is that this seed or offspring that he was going to give him would be the one to build a house for God's name. That David wouldn't get to do it, but his offspring would. Now that, again, who does that sound like? First blush, sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? Did Solomon build the earthly temple, the house of God in that regard? Certainly did. First Kings chapter 6 tells a somewhat abbreviated story. It's kind of the Reader's Digest version, if you're old enough to remember what those were, of the story of the building of the temple during Solomon's reign. Verse 38 says uh, he was, quote, seven years in building it. So one chapter telling a story of seven years uh, of work. Uh, in fact, at the dedication of the temple, which is a terrific uh, passage to read through. King Solomon spoke these words at the dedication of the temple, and what he's doing is he kind of points back to God's promise to to David. First Kings eight, verses seventeen to twenty-one. It says, "Now, this is this is Solomon speaking. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name." You did well that it was in your heart. He didn't condemn him for the thought, right? You did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house. But your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house 
for my name. And here it is. This is Solomon saying, Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and set and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark. Remember, that's what David was, was concerned about. In which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So, in a sense, what is, Sol- what is Solomon saying? Solomon's saying, all that God promised to David, I did. Now, is that really all that God promised? No. And that's, so, in other words, not only Solomon himself is a type or shadow of Christ, even the temple, the house of God itself, is a shadow or type of something else, of, of both Christ who was to come and the church as well. The first thing that, uh, that it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a shadow, the true temple, the place where sinners can find atonement for our sins and meet safely with the holy God. Is it a, is it a building? Is it ever really what it was? No, the, 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 the temple, in a sense, is Christ himself. You, you could say, you know, sometimes you read, you ever go through those read the Bible in a year programs, uh, and very good to do, I recommend it, but where do you usually, uh, if you're like me, where do you often kind of hit the brakes and get stuck? And, you know, you go from being on the freeway to being on an unpaved road and bumping around and you're not sure what you're reading and why you're reading it. Leviticus, Numbers, usually Leviticus for sure, right? Now, that's none of you. That, that just describes me. Well, you could, you could say Leviticus, all those weird things that you read and have trouble, you know, identifying with because we're in such a different circumstance than them, in some ways, is, is about, it's all about Christ. He's the temple. He's the priesthood. He's the sacrifices. He's all of it. It all, in some way, shape, or form, points to Jesus Christ, our, our high priest, our temple, and our sacrifice for, for sin. In, first, in the book of John, chapter 2, verses 18 to 21, John 2, 18 to 21, listen to what Jesus says about himself. And he said this more than once. He said, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, you, know, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Here's a good one. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That sounds like a, one of those magic shows you see on TV where they do something crazy. That'll never happen. And destroy, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Now, did they really understand what he was saying? No. Was Jesus really talking about the building that was probably within their sight at the moment or that they were standing in? No. It says here, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And he literally did exactly what he said. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He was talking about his own death, his own crucifixion and his resurrection. Well, this, there's another thing the temple points forward to this, the house of God. First Peter Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 5, it says, As you come to him a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's a mind-blowing thing to think about. Not only is Jesus... Ultimately, the fulfillment of the temple and the fulfillment of the, of the priesthood and the fulfillment of the sacrifice. 
It's like the, one of the commercials say, but wait, there's more. You know, you as God's people are also God's house and God's priesthood. And you are also offering up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. How? Through Jesus Christ. That's the temple points to Jesus and the temple also pointed forward to the church, to God's people, not to a building at all. Likewise, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22 says the same thing. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the son of God, the son of David that was promised, is right now still in the process of building a house for the name of the Lord. And you are, you are all the bricks and stones of that house. God's people all over this world, everyone who's ever has, is now, or will ever come to Christ, uh, are the stones in God's house. It's going to be a really big house. It's going to take more than 46 years for Christ to, to build it. Well, the last thing we see in our text that the Lord promised David, he promised him a seed or an offspring after him to reign in his place. He, t- he promised him that that seed, that, that son, would build a house for the name of the Lord. And the third thing is, in verse 13, that he would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's the key, forever. Can that be said of Solomon? Did Solomon's reign last forever? It might have felt like forever, but did it last forever? No, 40 40 years. Solomon's reign, you know, we sometimes give Solomon too much credit, and sometimes we don't give him enough credit, right? Solomon's reign, in some ways, if you were to think of your Old Testament history and the history of the monarchy, if I were to ask you what was the high point of the monarchy, I'm guessing most of us would say David. But in a sense, it wasn't. It was really Solomon. I mean, Solomon was the one who had the kind of the, glo- the, the glory days of Israel, of, of the monarchy, were the days of Solomon, in a way. In a lot of ways, his reign was even greater than that of, of David. But, but Solomon's throne wasn't forever, was it? Not even close. First Kings 11, verses 42 to 43, it says this, And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. 40 years. Not forever, 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. Now, just like the Old Testament priesthood, the Old Testament kings had this habit of dying and not continuing on in their reign and in their ministry and in their rule. And in fact, if you know your history, after Solomon's death, something that might have been unexpected to us happened, the the, the kingdom was divided. There was never another king over all uh, of Israel, north and south, northern kingdoms and southern kingdoms. They They were divided. And much of that was because of Solomon's sin. You know, just like David, as righteous a man as he was, sinned in grievous ways that you probably know very well about, Solomon did, did as well. In fact, in some ways, what Solomon did was far worse. God actually, part of the, the punishment or the chastisement to Solomon was the division of the kingdom for what he had done in following after other gods, being led away in his heart by, by foreign wives who served other gods. He, he fell into idolatry. And in doing so, he kind of set a pattern, a bad pattern, for many of the kings that would follow after him in the north and in the south. But the Lord Jesus Christ... He's the promised seed and son 
of David. He's the Messiah, the one that was to come, God's anointed king, who lives forever and whose reign will know no end. Of the Messiah, Isaiah chapter 9, another very familiar Christmas-type text that we think of every year. Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. Listen to these, this description of the Messiah, the, the Davidic king. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's, that's Jesus. That's, that's the King of kings and Lord of lords being prophesied, even coming as a child that this son was given, that he would be called mighty God. Was Solomon ever in his best days ever be called mighty God? You know, the, the title of a son of God was applied to the kings in some ways, but not the same way as it's applied to Jesus Christ. He would be called the son of the most high, even as the Lord told David regarding his promised cedar offering. What did God tell David in this promise in 2 Samuel 7? What did he say he was going to be to this son? Verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, you know, you might take that as kind of a figure of speech that God would treat the kings of Israel as if they were kind of his own sons. And that's that's true as far as that goes. But he's promising much more than that, wasn't he? He's probably promising David and promising us that the king that was to come was going to be his own son. It was going to be a divine king. The writer of the book of Hebrews, I should really call this whole series uh, the promise of Christmas in Hebrews as told in the Old Testament. Uh, but he quotes this verse. The writer of Hebrews quotes this text from Second Samuel, along with Psalm 2, verse 7. In speaking of Christ, Hebrews 1, 1 through 5, uh, it says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then what does it say? He quotes Psalm 2 and Second Samuel 7. He says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2, verse 7. And here from our text, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The writer of Hebrews takes this passage from 2 Samuel 7 to prove the divinity of Christ. That the Messiah would be no less than the son of God himself. The Messiah is God's anointed king, the savior of sinners. He's not just the son of David. He's also the son, more importantly, of God Himself. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who was promised to David. He is that promised son of David who would build a lasting house for the name of God. First Peter chapter 2, the throne of whose kingdom would be established forever. And he is even now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Every time we confess or recite the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, what, is, what do we say? He, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. When I was a kid... 
I, we recited that, I don't know how many, hundreds of times. I took that to mean inactivity. That Jesus is kind of sitting on his hands, you know, many still teach that kind of thing today. Someday he'll rule and reign, but it's not yet. No, he's reigning now. Jesus' reign isn't some later thing, although the manifestation of it will be much greater at some point when it's consummated. He's reigning over all things now for the sake of the church. That's for your sake and for mine. We don't have an absent king. He's not on vacation somewhere in a foreign land. He's in heaven at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling over all things. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Matthew 28, 18. It's the whole basis for the Great Commission. The only reason that we have any hope of the gospel going out and actually accomplishing anything is because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's what he's saying is, you know, we're timid. I'm timid. I don't know about you. I'm the most timid evangelist there is. You know, I'm always worried what someone's going to think of us. Oh, I'm going to sound stupid. You know, Jesus says, go make disciples. And what's going to happen? Disciples are going to be made. And why are they going to be made? Not because you and I are clever. Not because you and I are gifted, although you might be very gifted. But because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ, God's son and God's anointed king. And where is he right now? Seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, with all authority in heaven on earth having been given to him. Charles Hodge writes this. He writes, nothing, therefore, is more is more certain. Nothing, therefore, is more certain, according to the scriptures, than that Christ is a king. And consequently, if we would retain the truth concerning him and his work, he must be so regarded in our theology and religion. Jesus Christ as king is about as basic as it gets. It's about as important as it gets for everything we do, everything we do in worship, everything we do in life, everything we do in evangelism, is that Jesus Christ is king. Now, the Shorter Catechism speaks of Christ as king in this way. It says, question 26, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Good question. In other words, he's reigning now. What does it look like? What is Jesus, the king, doing right now as he reigns over all things? Answer, Christ executes the office of a king. He carries it out, right? How? In one, subduing us to himself. In subduing us to himself and ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. In other words, he does the things that an earthly king would do on a much greater scale, on a much more important scale. He does the same. Those things that, that an earthly king, a righteous earthly king might do, are just a picture, a foreshadowing of what Christ is going to do and is doing right now from the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He subdues us to himself. If you're a Christian this morning, guess who did that? Why, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, why are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Why do you know him as your Savior and as your Lord? Because he subdued you to himself through his gospel and the work of his Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, you know, that you're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works lest any man should boast. What else does he do? He doesn't just bring it to himself. He, rule, he rules and defends us. And if you read the book of Acts, the book of Acts is really not the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of King Jesus from the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It's the only thing that makes sense out of the whole book. When you read the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation has a word in it that you read over and over and over again. And I've read it, I don't know how many times, and it never dawned on me. 
You, you'll read the word throne in the book of Revelation literally dozens of times. And most of those instances, not all of them, but almost all of them are in reference to whose throne? Christ's. The whole book of Revelation isn't just that Jesus wins. It's that he's ruling and sovereignly reigning over all of it right now. He is not an absent, absent king. He's ruling right now over all things for the sake of his people and for the glory of his name. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we were singing that unchristmassy hymn. Uh, it's one of my favorite songs. The more we sing it, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And there's a, a first a part, and we'll close with this, towards the end of verse 3. Um, think about who Jesus is as the Son of God, the Lord of glory, Reigning, you know, think about everything about Christmas. Think about the wise men, you know, coming to worship him, to bring gifts. Think about Herod trying to stop Jesus because he knew he was a king. The whole story is about Jesus being a king. Think about the, the triumphal entry. When the people said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of, his father, of our father David. It's all, both Christmas and Easter, all about this, all about Christ being king. Well, Listen to the part of the third verse of stricken, smitten, and afflicted, and we'll close with this. Think about who died for your sins if you're a Christian this morning. The Lord of glory, it says, says mark, uh, mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word the Lord's anointed, that's Messiah, son of man and son of God. And as the first verse said, the long-expected prophet David's son, yet David's Lord. That's, that's who came and died for our salvation. That's who rose from the dead on the third day for our justification. And even now, he's, he's not done. He's still reigning and ruling over all things for our benefit, that one day we'll be with him forever when his reign is completed, when it's consummated, when he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes and we'll no longer struggle with sin. The last enemy will be defeated. That enemy is death. And the evil one, that's what we look forward to because of Christ, his powerful reign over all things forever. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that you have not left us without a king. That wherever, we, wherever your people live on this earth, whether it be a place that has a president or a king or a, a tyrant of, of all kinds of forms, that we are not serving them ultimately, but we serve the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ, your son, our Savior, your chosen King, the one that you have set on your holy hill. And as Psalm 2 even goes on to say, that uh, blessed are all who take refuge in him. That even the kings, the most powerful ones on this world, that, that think so highly of themselves, even as Nebuchadnezzar did, uh, in Psalm 2 you tell them to kiss the son lest he be angry and they perish in the way that, that all of their rebellion against him, what, do you, what does he do? He laughs. He laughs at them that we, we have nothing to fear for our defender, our maker, our redeemer is also our defender. And he rules over all things from your right hand for our benefit in such a way that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even death itself. And we give you praise for that. We give you praise that he, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, our king of kings, that he even now rules over all things for us. We thank you and praise you that by your grace he subdued us to himself through your gospel. And we thank you that even now he rules over all things for our, for our sakes and our benefit that nothing can separate us from him. We do pray that if anybody here this morning does not yet know you through faith in Christ, that you might make today the day of their salvation, that you might open their eyes, that they might look to him, 
and have life in his name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Amen.